0: Somebody needs to stop me, but it's not going to be me. Normally, it's me. Normally, I'm pretty good at stopping myself, but I just i have no discipline when it comes to night school. You know, Joe, Joe Obama bin Biden. Everybody hates Joe Obama bin Biden. You know, Joe Obama bin Biden doesn't even bother me that much. I don't like what he represents in our current culture, but he actually represents very little. And uh, I don't really have much to say about that. I'm not going to get into the stan of Afghani. Speaks for itself. There's no reason to twist yourself up. I mean, there's no reason in the world, truly the world, for me to get twisted up about the stan of Afghani. To me, it's just, it's self-evident. My baseline is not to get involved in any of that stuff to begin with. So I just look at it and I'm like, oh, it's a convoluted, violent mess where we propped up pedophile warlords. I've, I've had this conversation with multiple people where they don't know that. Even though it's it's been in the news, it's it's not like this has been hidden. It's not like this has been, you know, it's not like this information has been hidden in some underground news network, you know, by by partisan conspiracy theorists. I mean, it's just, it's it's been an established fact that the people, the tribe that we put into power have an ancient pedophile practice and the CIA and the U.S. military, well, the U.S. military took kind of a, we're going to turn a blind eye. Like they told their soldiers, soldiers have come back and they've said, we we were instructed to turn a blind eye to the rampant pedophilia in the stand of Afghani army. And then the CIA was giving the leaders of those tribes Viagra. And they framed it as like, oh, we're giving them Viagra because they're getting older and they can't bang their four wives. But really, they're getting a lot of their sexual expression out through boys. There's a lot of information on this. But, like, my buddy called me this morning. He lives in Virginia. I'm not going to name him because he's, he's, he's not vaccinated and he's having to get a, co, a Coronavi test today because he's feeling sick. But he had no idea. Like, he, he comes from a military family and he had never heard this whole thing about the rampant pedophilia among the people who we were supporting. And I was saying to him, I was like, you know, that doesn't make me choose the Taliban, I don't become a Taliban supporter because, you know, it's it's truly a rock and a hard place. And just what else do you expect, though, getting involved over there? So that's my my baseline is getting involved over there. Oh, are you surprised that everything that comes from that situation is a horrible dilemma? Are you surprised? Are you surprised? I'm not. So that's all I'll say about that. But you know, people going after Joe Bama, ben Biden specifically—I don't know. I mean, he's a useless leader, period. And he's a creep. My mom thought he was a creep, that's, which is funny. Like, no matter how much my mom hated Trumpsfeld, which she did, she always said, "I, I don't like, I don't like Joe Biden." She didn't say Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm going to revise history a little bit and say that my mom called him Joe Bama, too. Me and my mom called him Joe Bama, but she was like, I don't like him. She didn't didn't want him to be president. I'm sure she would have voted for him if she had been alive during this last election, but she thought he was a creep, and he is a creep. But I talked on here before. I want to get into what I... Here, let's get into what I actually want to talk about, which is dogs. You know, I did a couple episodes... ...about this exact subject, how, like, there was the whole PR campaign with Joe Obama, bin Biden's dog... ...where it's like, he's got a dog, oh, he's a good guy because he's got a dog. But then, like, that leads people who don't like the Democrats to, like, start almost hating his dog... ...or to believe that it's all fake. Oh, Ma- I think the dog's name was Major. Am I making that up? I had a friend whose dog's name was Major, too. I had a friend whose dog was named Major... And Joe Obama's dog's name is Major. It's almost like he's my friend. No, but that disgusts me because, yeah, the White House was doing really embarrassing stuff related to those dogs. Like, they were doing these social media posts where they pretended to talk. Like, they used, like, animal puns or dog puns. Like, woof. I wouldn't even be able to do it. My brain can't even go there. I can't even do these sort of dog puns. And the fact that that was coming from the White House, it was just disgusting. Like, I I didn't like the PR aspects of, like, his dog. Let's focus—instead of focusing on all this other stuff that's much more important, let's focus on the dog. And I I especially don't—I don't like that from the point of view of the people who are doing that. Like, forcing this this animal-friendly PR campaign. Because it it is a form of kissing the baby. But I also don't like it because we live in such a back-and-forth— you know, ping-pong game, then that, now Republicans and conservatives are like, he doesn't even like dogs. He doesn't even like dogs. And it's like, you, neither of you should be focusing on the dogs. And you know what? I bet Joe Obama and Biden loves dogs. He seems like a dog guy. Like, with how touchy and feely he is toward women, like the way that he, he gropes women and smells of their hair and all that. I'm sure he loves dogs because he can put his hands all over them. And dogs love it. Like, sometimes I'll be, like, you know, I'll I'll go over to Batty and I'll be, like, rubbing his stomach and, like, patting him down and, like, sticking my face in, like, the space between his neck and his ear. (laughs) Whatever that's called. You know, everybody knows what the taint is. The space between, you know, everybody knows what a taint is. The space between your you-know-what and your you-know-what. But what do you call the space between, like, a dog's ear and it's neck. Maybe it's neck. Maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm talking about the space between its ear and its shoulder. Maybe the word I'm looking for is neck. But anyway, like I do that with Batty, and I never thought I would be one of those people. Like I never thought I'd be somebody who's like rubbing his face and his on his dog and like rubbing a dog's stomach and patting him around and playing rough. But I'm sure like given how physical Joe Obama bin Biden is, given what a creep he is toward women. He can do that with dogs and they probably, they, they, they do it right back. Like they love it back. So like he seems like a dog person. And I, you know, I, I did those episodes a while back too, just to recap about how when there is conflict or war or political tension and violence, how people will target an animal. Like if somebody has a problem with you, they see your animal as an extension of you. And I use the example of of the Antifa BLM type people throwing rocks at that car with a dog in it. Even though it was just a car that, as far as I know, drove down the wrong street during a protest. They were throwing rocks at the actual window where the dog was barking. I've seen video of this. And what's crazy, like, because I have a friend who, his parents are just, they've gotten really deep into this whole Democrat narrative and he'll occasionally bring things up that are, like, where there's video evidence. And his, it, and it, when he when he tells his parents or even shows them, it's really just in one ear and out the other. And he doesn't hate them for it. It's not like he's mad at his parents about it, but it's frustrating because he'll be like, you know, here's an actual video of what I'm talking about. and Because if you just tell somebody, they just go, eh, that didn't happen. We're so used to dismissing everything that somebody else says. And even me saying that, like, oh, there's a video of BLM protesters Throwing rocks at a dog. These people who are probably, they probably love animals, but that's what war and conflict does to people is that you see everything associated with a person as an extension of them and that includes their animals. And if you've read about war, which I I, I increasingly feel like people haven't, I thought everybody read about war. I thought everybody knew about what goes on in war. Like everybody knows about rape. Everybody knows about murder. Everybody knows some of those things that go on in war the looting and burning, they kill people's animals too. Like they go to farms and they kill instead of like, because they could take somebody's livestock and be like, well, this is a resource in some places. Livestock is more valuable than money, but in war, sometimes they'll just kill all the livestock and they'll kill people's dogs. They'll even torture people's animals for fun. Like that happens during war, you know, and is that a surprise? Like this situation where everybody's killing each other and everybody's on opposite sides, is it a surprise that they do awful things to animals? But you can see where like, and I, I've used the example too of my friend told me a story where when she was younger, like she had a pet rabbit and she she got in a fight with her boyfriend and her boyfriend grabbed the rabbit and he screamed as loud as he could in its ear. You know, I mean, I'm sure anybody who just hears that, it's like, yeah, I want to slit his throat, right? Do it slowly. So he feels it. How dare you scream in a rabbit's ear because you're mad at, but see, he's mad at his girlfriend and that rabbit is important to her. And I've seen that play out too. I've seen people develop resentment towards someone's pet because they have resentment toward the person. And so that's what was playing out with like Joe Obama, Ben Biden and his dog and all this. And I I just hate that that's even a dialogue that you even need. I hate that they're propping his dog up as as a PR stunt. I hated that people then feel the need to like criticize that and invest themselves in that and nitpick it. It just I I don't It just don't let's not even do it to begin with. Let's not even use animals as political props. And the reality is, is that, yes, somebody who otherwise probably considers themselves an animal lover could do something mean to an animal if they're in a wartime mindset. And that includes the personal, you know, like I said, like the guy screaming in his, because I mean, and that's not just one, you read stories about how like some crazy ex-boyfriend, he kills his his ex-girlfriend's dog because it's a way of getting at her. And that doesn't mean that guy, like when they were together, it doesn't mean that guy always hated the dog. It's just that people turn into psychopaths. And, you know, Hitler... Here we are back to Hitler. We're not done with Hitler, guys. We're not done. You know, sometimes I I will think that I've already, you know, studied or thought about a subject enough. It's worth revisiting things with new eyes. Like, in the same way that I'm talking about... Here, we got our misfits referenced here, too. We're like, in the same way that, like, revisiting the misfits 20 years later... It's not like I never listened to the Misfits between then, but like revisiting one of your favorite bands every couple years, just revisiting something, how you, even if it's the same, even if you have the same feeling, you're hearing the same sounds, you know, as you get older, it's worth revisiting things. It's, it's similar to the principle that I mentioned of like, yeah, it can be annoying to repeat the same story or repeat the same joke, but sometimes it's through that repetition that something new comes, a new thought. And so that's kind of how I feel right now about World War II and Nazi Germany is I'm kind of revisiting that in my head. I'm doing a little reading because I'm like, you know, now is a good time for me to revisit that. I thought I already kind of had a, a good grasp, like, and not even of the the cut and dry facts of it. I'm even just talking about like looking at it psychologically, looking at it spiritually, looking at looking at it from the, these larger perspectives and just looking at some of the different stories that emerge because there are so many. And, you know, with people like, you know, needing to have an opinion on Joe Obama, bin Biden's dog. And I mean, that ship sailed, the dog bit somebody and they, they shipped it back to his house or something. There was something like that. I, I think I talked about it, but you know, that's not in the news, but Joe Obama, bin Biden is in the news. And, it, and I was, you know, thinking about Hitler's dog, Blondie, Hitler loved dogs. Like it was well known that Hitler was a dog guy. Like even there's even a picture of Hitler in World War One where he doesn't have his mustache today that he has today, he has this like bigger mustache. It's weird to see him. He's like really young and skinny, and he has like this big like curly mustache. It's it's really weird to see Hitler without his little mustache, that little smudge, which it turns out tons of German men had. You know, you'll even see German men in the U.S. during that time who have that weird little mustache. But he owns it now it's hitler's now it's it's the nike swoosh of nazism now to have that mustache it it is interesting how like a a single decoration a mustache like that like it'll be a long time if ever before you can have that And, and and to have it not be some kind of joke about hitler or you know something but but anyway like hitler and his dog like you know, he like there's a there's a picture of him from World War One where he rescued a dog during the war, and there's a photo of him with like two other soldiers and they're in their gear and everything, and there's this little dog down by his feet, and and that's a recurring theme. Like when Hitler was homeless and everything, where he had a dog, and then he he temporarily he temporarily like like rehoused the dog because he was he was homeless and building his political campaign building what would become national socialism. But then as soon as he could, he, he went back and he, he got the dog again. And, you know, I'm not saying this to be like, Oh, he, he was such a great guy. I'm just saying this is, this is the truth. And then there's the story of like, he had in his bunker near the end, he had Blondie and there were some other dogs there. I think there were like five, at least five dogs living in the wolf's lair near the end. And then famously, though, infamously, you know, Hitler was given the cyanide pills from the SS that would kill him. But at that point, he had become so untrusting of even the SS, of even Himmler. Hitler did not trust a single person at the end. And this was, these are, this is like immediately before he killed himself. So his plan, he got those cyanide pills because he knew that he was losing the war and he was going to kill himself. But he didn't believe that the cyanide pills would work he believed the ss might have given him fake cyanide pills and he wanted to make sure that he was going to die so he had this he had one of the cyanide pills given to his beloved dog blondie and it killed the dog and sometimes you see that presented as like oh look hitler just sometimes like you see that information presented flippantly And for for obvious purposes to like dehumanize Hitler to say like he killed his dog with cyanide pills. But then the actual accounts of that were that that was basically the event that there was no going back at that point. Like they said that he was, when the dog actually died from the cyanide pill, he was beyond, beyond grief. Like that, that was it you know, when his dog actually died from the pill that he himself was planning on taking the next day. I think it was, this is all a matter of days, I think. But they said that when that dog actually died, when Blondie died, that he was just beyond. There was no going back. He was, he was so distraught. And they said too, that the other people in the bunker were more upset when Blondie died than when Ava Braun died. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so it's like people loved Blondie in that bunker more than they loved Ava Braun. I don't I don't know a lot about her, but I think that's not terribly surprising. A lot of people, you know, if you're stuck in a bunker with limited people, you're probably going to end up liking the dogs more than the people. But, you know, Hitler ended up dying right after. And then the plan to kill all the dogs, like, like the, I mean, the plan was for every single living being in that bunker to die pretty much. So it was like, you know, the dogs were just an extension of that. And then they said that Hitler, too, he did not want the dog, he did not want Blondie and the other dogs to fall under, into the hands of the Soviets. And you think about it, and it's like, it's not just because, oh, you know, it's not like his brain was thinking, like, give, keep in mind, like, everything I've said throughout this episode about, like, the way, the attitude that people take toward animals and the cruelty that they will do to animals in times of war And it's not like Hitler was like, oh, I don't want the Soviets to get a hold of Blondie and the other dogs because I just can't bear the idea of Blondie being rescued by communists and living out the rest of her life with communists. I don't think that was it. I imagine the concern was that they will either kill the dog anyway. This is Hitler's dog. You know, if people are willing to throw rocks. If BLM protesters are willing to throw rocks at a dog because a car drove down the wrong street during a protest... You can only imagine what people are willing to do to Hitler's dog. Even if they just kill it. Either way, it's going to die. You know, the chances that the Soviets are going to be like, you know what, we should really take care of his dogs and treat them well. Maybe they would have done that. I doubt it. You know, like if I knew that my enemy was coming to, to take over and, uh, you know, I was planning to kill myself and I had no hope left. What would I do with Batty? What would I do? I don't know. I'm not in that position, so I don't even have to consider that horrible thought. But some people are in that position. And so like, but I've seen that story framed as, oh, look, look at how callous Hitler is. He had his, he had, he had his cyanide pill tested on his dog and killed it. He must not have really cared about animals. And people have said the same thing, kind of like people's response to Joe Obama, bin Biden's dog. People have said that, because it was well known in Nazi Germany, like they used images of Hitler with German shepherds. They used images of Hitler with blondie. And some people look back on that and they say, like, oh, it was an obvious PR stunt, which it was. But just like with Biden, Ben Biden, just because it's a PR stunt doesn't mean there isn't a genuine love for the animal. But because Hitler killed a bunch of people, because Hitler, you know, was responsible for the final solution, we have a tendency to to like, we have this dissonance where we're like, well, he couldn't possibly have really loved his dog. Considering how many people he killed mercilessly, merc- mercilessly, he couldn't possibly have actually loved that dog and they obviously, Nazi Germany, used the dog, his relationship to animals as a PR stunt and then look, he had the dog killed with a cyanide pill. He, had, he, he used the dog as a tester for the cyanide pill but life is far more complex. We are far more complex than that and even if you don't understand it, you need to at least accept the complexity of it all. And, and again, though, it's like it's like if you knew that your enemy was coming and they were not going to treat you or anybody else with any mercy, they might do horrendous things to you. And just like that girl's my friend's boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, screaming in her rabbit's ear because he was mad at her. You know, are you going to leave your beloved pets in the hands of the Soviets? And then after Hitler committed suicide, like one of his aides killed all the dogs, shot them all. And that was part of the plan. Like that was included. Like part of Hitler's exit plan from life, from reality included explicit instructions to kill all the dogs. And yeah, that's, I mean, do I like that? I think it's horrible. But also the alternative was probably going to be horrible or maybe even worse. Who knows what the allies would have done? Who knows what bored soldiers or you know who who knows what people would have done during World War II to their enemies animals? I mean I mean people were doing horrible things to animals during that conflict anyway. So I understand the idea of you know it's over. Like his world was over. And so with with Hitler's world being over, he wanted everything that mattered in his, his world to leave with him. And that's a much older idea. This is why people, you know, I don't, you know, this is why, like, you need to have like some perspective on these things too, where as a little kid, I had this book about Vikings. Somebody got me a, cause like I said, you know, if you grow up, like even though I have mixed heritage on, you know, one side of my family and it's not like I'm pure Scandinavian, that was what was emphasized. I, I do have dominant Scandinavian ancestry, and so that was what was emphasized. And when you grow up, when you grow up with dominant Scandinavian ancestry, your people buy you Viking books. You're introduced to the culture a bit. I wouldn't be able to tell you about the food. I wouldn't be able to tell you about the language, but when you're a Scandinavian American kid, they buy you Viking books. It's pretty cool. But in this book, it was it was weird because they had a, a it was illustrated, and the illustrations were very cool. I still have the book, and. You know, that book, actually, my family didn't even buy me that book. It was given to me for my birthday by a friend who was Norwegian-American. He was, his name was Eric as well. And he, he spelled it with a K, Eric with a K. But for my, I think it was my first grade birthday, he bought me this Viking book. And so it's kind of cool that this kid who's a Norwegian-American bought this Swedish-American. I mean, I, I have just as much Norwegian in me, but my name is, comes from Sweden. And in that book, though, it was illustrated and there was a part about Viking burials. And there was a part about like Earl Canute, like like the leader, the chieftain of this Viking tribe. It was about his burial and it it shows his burial. Like they buried him with his ship and all of his belongings. And in that, they show how they would bury somebody with their servants. They They would kill somebody's servants and bury them with the Lord, which is insane. We look at that, and it's like they killed these people, but those servants were seen as an extension of him. But then, relevant to this discussion, they also killed his dog. When the Lord died, they killed his dog and buried the dog with him. They buried his servants and his dog with him. So you can see where Hitler, being a German, being not far off from Scandinavia, having many of the same cultural practices, they're not identical. But it's like if you were to ask somebody like, if you get outside of Scandinavia, what is, what which country shares the most similarities with Scandinavia, you'd go Germany. Culturally, geographically, it's the next, you know, there's a reason why Scandinavia is sometimes referred to as Germanic for that matter. You know they're not identical, but it's like there's a, a relationship there. But you look at that, and it's like Hitler was dying, so his dogs died with him. And given it was a time of war, there was more going on, as I already went into. But still, it's like you. It makes me think of that that old book that I have. Because at the time, I was like, that's awful. Like when you're a little kid and you're reading this book, that's otherwise like it didn't sugarcoat Vikings, but it also it didn't it didn't you know this book wasn't explicit. Like, it showed some fights and things, but it didn't go into all the horrible details. But I was, like, taken aback as this little kid reading this, and I'm like, they killed his dog? And I wasn't even a dog person then. But it was just like they killed this man's dog and buried him with it. Because that's what you did with a Lord. It's like his world gets buried with him. His servants and his dog get buried with him, along with a bunch of valuable belongings. And you could be like, well, those, those that gold, all those that sword, those jewels, those possessions, like those could go to his family or somebody else who could use them. It's not like they're, it's not like jewels and gold and armor and swords. It's not like those suddenly become, it's not like those suddenly lose their value when when the Lord dies, but you bury him with his world or part of his world. And you can see where like when Hitler was dying, or when Hitler was planning to kill himself imminently, imminently, that he, the same principle applied, like Hitler's world dies with him. No doubt he saw it that way. And I, there's also a part of me, and you know, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, maybe I'm doing my own projection on this, but I have to believe that When Hitler had, you know, because we we hear about the point of no return where somebody, you know, does something or allows something to happen that that means that they'll never be able to go back. And there's all kinds of different, there's all kinds of different versions of that. I think everybody probably understands it. Everybody knows about that, like what the point of no return means. I mean that that can happen in a conversation. Like I've had a conversation with somebody where I say something I shouldn't say, and then I realize, oh, there's no going back now. So I just have to move forward with it and double down, or or do what I have to do. But you know, with with Hitler having Blondie killed with the cyanide, which he didn't know was going to happen. He didn't. He wasn't sure if the cyanide was going to work. But when it worked, and they said that he was unimaginably grief stricken like that's how it's been described is just that when 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 the cyanide actually worked on blondie the german shepherd that hitler was just unimaginably grief stricken and i have to wonder if that was his point of no return i mean i imagine in the third reich there are many points of no return i mean you can see it even just with the final solution it's like once they started once they sent out those firing squads Before the final solution, when they were sending out firing squads to just kill Jews in Russia, that's a point of no return. From there, you're just, you know, it's just a matter of scale. And so the Third Reich is maybe, I mean, I think that's maybe one of the best examples we have of the point of no return. At some point, there was no going back. When the the Third Reich started killing certain people, there's no going back from that. You can't sugarcoat that. Even if you even if you try to hide it, even if you try to revise history, there's still no going back. But I have to wonder like on a personal level, if having Blondie when Blondie died from that cyanide, you really have to wonder if that was the moment when Hitler officially gave up, because he died, Not the, I, don't, I don't remember the exact timeline, but it was very soon before he killed himself, very soon before Ava killed herself. You really have to wonder if like, killing his beloved German shepherd was when the decision was done. He probably would, even if he could have escaped, I have to imagine that no matter what you want to say about him being a sociopath or a psychopath, I don't think we'll ever completely understand his psychology. But no matter what you want to say about that, he obviously loved that dog. Like There's even stories where he let the dog sleep in his bed. It's like, oh, Hitler's just like me. Hitler's just like me. He lets his dog sleep in his bed, even though they say not to. But no, there's no question that he loved this dog. And so him having the dog killed with cyanide, you really have to wonder if that was the final... Like, like Hitler's, whatever whatever humanity remained in Hitler at that time, you have to wonder if that was the official end. And it's not surprising that he killed himself. He probably couldn't have lived with himself. I mean, he could have. Who knows? I'm just projecting shit. But it's like, you know, it's, it's almost like he couldn't live with himself after that. But the plan was already in place. It was just total self-destruct. And I find those situations interesting. Because it's the opposite of what I was talking about when I mentioned managed entropy. Like I talked about managed entropy, which is like things are falling into chaos. Let's try to do it in a way that is deliberate and as controlled as it can possibly be. The Third Reich was so far removed from that. There was no way. The Third Reich had managed entropy was, it wasn't anywhere near the table. It wasn't on the table. It wasn't near the table. The concept was, you couldn't even discuss the idea of it at that point. There was no way to, to gradually fall into chaos, to gradually lose the war. And as a result, what you see is just pure self-destruction. Again, like Hitler, his philosophy at the very end was, you know, just this, this all needs to go. Like, I need, like he's going to die, his closest allies are going to die, his dogs are going to die. Not that he probably, you know, there's obviously he he probably wanted the Nazi ideal to continue. But just those moments of just pure self-destruction, because that's what always got me about school shootings, too. Like the most fascinating thing about Columbine to me, and I mentioned in one of the recent episodes, how I've never been that interested in school shootings. It's just like when they happen, I might read a blip about them depending if there's something particularly interesting about it maybe I'll read some articles I'll do uh, I don't do much digging though but with Columbine you know it was so infamous it was it was everywhere it was just everywhere and you couldn't help but be fascinated by it on some level and like but the thing that always interested me the most were those moments before they shot themselves it wasn't when they were going on their spree it wasn't It wasn't what they did beforehand. It wasn't what they did during the the massacre. It was that moment when Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were alone in the library and they decided to die. Because I don't think the police were near them yet. Like, I know with the Virginia Tech killer, he killed himself, like, right as the police were bursting in. But I believe Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, like, they had a moment of, if you want to call it tranquility... I don't. Maybe it's probably not a bad word. When you've just gotten done massacring people and you have a moment to yourself, I don't know. You might be able to call that tranquility. But that moment, or however long it lasted, because there was a period where Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, I believe they were just going around. Like there were even people still alive, and they saw them. Like there were some victims, uh, survivors, who said that. They saw Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold walking around. Here, turns out I know tons about Columbine. What do you mean you don't know anything? No, we all know a lot about Columbine. But uh, they said that they saw them walking around and, like, they even made eye contact with them. And at that point, though, it was like the massacre was over. Like, the momentum, the hot-bloodedness of the massacre was over. And even though they saw other people hiding, they didn't kill them, which is fascinating. Whether they felt guilt or remorse, I don't know. But the fact that they stopped killing people after a certain point and were just sort of pacing around, just sort of wandering around, taking account of things. But then that's the most interesting that's that's the most interesting moment in the Columbine massacre is when the, the initial massacre was over and they were just kind of going around assessing their surroundings. It was probably utterly surreal. And then that moment when they decided to kill themselves, because like I said, it wasn't like the police were bursting in at that moment. It was just they made a decision at that point. So like that kind of self-destruction. And in that case, like they, that's a great example of the point, the point of no return. Like with a school shooting, I have to imagine that even the most resolute school shooter, somewhere in the back of their mind, they're not entirely sure if they're going to go forward with it. And then when they actually do, when they kill that first person, that's the point of no return. Like I know in Virginia Tech that he killed two people that morning. Like he had gone to a dorm and he shot two people. He killed them. And then he went home and he mailed that. He took like photos of himself and he he mailed his manifesto to NBC, I think it was. And they said too that he like he sent this file, like he sent like a disc or or something that contained all these files. And they said that they could tell that his manifest, he had edited his manifesto in the period between those first killings. And then when he went on and did the the full on massacre, but that's another part that's to me, that's the most interesting part of Virginia Tech is that period. He'd already crossed the threshold. He killed those two people early in the morning, didn't get caught, went back to his apartment, went back to his dorm continued working on his manifesto, made videos, went to the post office, came back, then went to the, the study hall where he killed all like 30 people, however many it was. And like that that period though in between, that's where he'd already crossed the he, he'd, he'd already reached the point of no return. And I think it's it's very important in life to know what that is in any given situation. It could be something completely minor. It's like with a relationship. Like if you've ever broken up with somebody, I've only ever really been the one. I, I've had maybe like one mutual breakup where it's kind of like both people make the decision. I've only had one where I really make the decision. And I mean, that's kind of the same thing. Like I remember like gearing myself up like telling my girlfriend at the time, like, Hey, like things were not going well. And we were both, we, we had tried, like, I had tried to break up with her like a month earlier and it didn't, we just, we were like, let's not do this. Like we went out to eat afterward. And then we were like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm ready for this, but you know, then like a month later I was like, yeah, things haven't gotten better. I got to, I got to end this. The only time I've really had to do that to really pull the trigger, I shouldn't say that, I should. Who cares? Oh my God! You're talking about school shootings, and then you used pull the trigger as a a metaphor. How dare you, you know? But uh, it's it's interesting because that's like a similar thing to the point of no return. Because I remember messaging her and saying like things weren't going well, and I just remember saying like, "Hey, I'm gonna be bringing some of your like I had some some of her stuff, and I said I just said, "Hey, I'm gonna bring some of your stuff over after work tomorrow," and she said, "Okay." So that itself sets it up, you know. You know, you kind of know what's gonna happen. But like until you actually get there and you start saying it, you haven't reached the point of no return. And, and with a relationship, I mean, there is, you can return, you know, but still there is, once you say that thing, there's, it's a point of no return. Even if you backtrack, it's like, you know, you, you can't pull that back in. It's been said. So I I, I think a lot about points of no return and I do have to wonder with, with Adolf Hitler if that moment where the cyanide pill worked on Blondie, his dog, if that was the final point of no return for him. Because obviously there were many points of no return. You can look at the entire you know, you can look at the entire timeline of the Third Reich as one point of no return after another. The Beer Hall putsch. The Night of the Long Knives. You know, there's all these events marked throughout the history of the Third Reich where you can see where there was no going back after that. Implementing the final solution, starting war, invading Poland. It's just, it's one point of no return after another. But then that final point of no return was having his beloved dog killed. At At which point, by all accounts, he completely lost it. So I don't know, pretty heavy duty started out talking about Joe Obama, bin Biden, but it's something I think about. I think about with animals in particular, you know, and it's why I, it, it really disturbed me probably more than anybody else. People would probably think that I'm like, what's wrong with you? But when people were one, like I, I didn't like that Joe Obama, bin Biden's dog was being used as this PR stunt, but I didn't like how that created a need to like criticize that. That created a need for bin Biden's opponents to attack it. And by extension, kind of attack the dog in a way. Direct negativity toward the dog. And it's not surprising his dog like bit people. It's probably a nice dog, but it's like in that sort of tense world, like I don't think you should have animals in the White House. I don't think you should have animals in your wolf's lair bunker during World War II. But who knows if the animals even know? Who knows if they—they they probably do. They know something's going on. But uh, you know, points of no return—something to think about in your life. Like before you make a decision, you know, do you want to go back? Do you want to go forward? Do you want to stay where you're at? What is your point of no return? Something to consider about yourself. As a man, I feel like that's especially more important. I don't know about as a woman. I don't know what a woman feels. But with a man, a point of no return is often something incredibly severe. It often means that either you're going to die or somebody else is going to die. That's just what it means to be a man. Points of return... Points of no return can be the thing that causes you or just everything associated with you, everything near you, to fall into that abyss. And that is kind of how I see the point of no return. I see it as an abyss. Actually, I I never know what these mobile episodes, if I record multiple ones and splice them together, which I rarely do, but I always mention it because I don't know if it sounds like some jarring break, but who cares? Who cares? You know, just a thought about, you know, leadership in particular, because what's so interesting is like when someone reaches a certain level, like the fact that I even know these details about Hitler's dog, Z. Like, I know about multiple dogs that Hitler owned, and I'm not even some expert. Like, I'm not even an expert in this stuff, but the fact that I even know about the dogs that this guy owned. Like, when someone reaches that level of infamy, that level level of fame, and that's an important thing to us, too. Like even with just people we know, even with our peers, pets are one of the main things we talk about. It's one of the only things I can really talk about when I'm in a professional environment because since I don't watch Parks and Rec, you know, when I'm around or not even professional, like even most social situations, you know, it's like a lot of parties just involve people like quoting sitcoms. You're going to the wrong parties. I've been to cool parties, trust me, but There's a lot of social situations where people just default to like talking about sitcoms or these days, politics. I've mentioned before how like the, how politics have become a form of small talk, which is not good, but it's just a symptom of the times. But anyway, it's like just the fact that I know, (laughs) you know, the fact that somebody can become so big that you know who their dogs were and you know... You know about the last moments of their pet's life, like in Hitler's case. But it's like even with just people you know, it's it's such a bond. Our relationships with other species bonds us together as humans. Like even talking about Adolf Hitler, there are people that they wouldn't want to admit it. But there are people, like, when you get beyond the fact that he had his dog killed with cyanide, but when you look at the actual context of that, and you look at, like, Hitler's relationships with his dogs, which maybe there's more out there, and he wasn't very nice to them. I have no idea. I just haven't come across it, of anything. But it's like, it makes him seem more human when you read about his relationship with his dogs. And that's interesting. A guy who massacred people on a scale that, I mean, you know... Some people have matched him, but you know, somebody who killed people on the scale that he did and the fact that his relationship with his dog brings out his humanity. And that's such a silly thing. And it goes hand in hand with everything I've been talking about lately, which is like the dehumanization of bad people. And this was something that I used to harp on back when I was getting into serial killers and I was into serial killers. It's like, I don't think it's good to necessarily think of these people purely as monsters or to think of them as non-human because you don't learn from that. When you just say, oh, Jeffrey Dahmer was a monster and you don't actually look into Jeffrey, who Jeffrey Dahmer was and his own explanations, like beyond his weird like, oh, if it wasn't for evolution, I never would have been a serial killer. Like that was a weird angle. But when you actually hear Jeffrey Dahmer talk honestly about his life, you do you see the human in him. But I don't know why people equate human with good. Human is the entire spectrum of humanity. Dang it! You know, it's it's like when you say that somebody is human, that doesn't mean good human, and it also doesn't mean bad human and misanthropes. And I've never, I've never been comfortable, even when I was much more cynical and dark. Like I, I never considered myself a full on misanthrope. I just couldn't quite go there with with it. You know, even though people bothered me a lot, I just couldn't quite call myself a misanthrope. But you can see where a misanthrope kind of defaults to this view that human equals bad human. And then the sort of the mainstream dialogue, the communal dialogue kind of revolves around human equals good human. For me, human equals human. (laughs) And that includes the good and the bad and I mean I think it is useful sometimes just to call somebody a monster like sometimes you just look at a situation and all you can really say is that he's evil he's a monster I think you should be able to do that you know I don't believe you know I don't believe in censoring people if they want to say that and I myself say that sometimes sometimes you're just you don't have anything else to say and also, you don't actually mean this person was not a human. You mean they were a human who did monstrous things. But it is going back to like the dog thing. It just is interesting that the reason that's used as a PR stunt by politicians, the reason why the White House was doing press releases pretending to talk like Joe Biden's dog, Joe Obama, Joe Obama Bin Biden's dog. I don't even know if people know who I'm talking about when I say Joe, Joe Obama Bin Biden. I started saying, because I was looking for a nickname for him, and you can't force it. Like, you can't, like, these, these stupid nicknames I come up with for these different people, like, they just have to come out naturally, and the dumber they are, the better, but it has to be a natural dumb. I got to be very careful not to force it, but, like, I did have a thought, I was like, does anybody actually know who I'm even talking about when I say Joe Obama, bin Biden? Is that just way too esoteric? But anyway, like when they're doing press releases, pretending to be Joe Obama, bin Biden's dog, like the reason why that's even a technique, the reason why Nazi Germany used Hitler and Blondie for PR is because we do respond to that. And, and like I was saying, it's like, that's probably, you know, I remember when I would go over to my grandparents' house as a kid, they lived across the street, but I'd go over there and usually we'd just end up talking about our cats. And it wasn't because we didn't have anything else to talk about. It's what we wanted to talk about. And there, there's the cliche, like awkward person who goes to a party and just spends all their time petting the cat. Nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, there's something though that like animals manage to bring our, out our humanity more. And that just shows you the beautiful complexity of, of what we are, which is that it's not just our relationships to, to each other, but the fact that our relationship to another species makes us love each other more. I mean, that's a huge thing in romantic relationships where, you know, you can't be with somebody romantically if they don't love animals and you do. And down to the specific type of animal. And I mean, I don't consider myself a cat person or a dog person anymore. I resolutely considered myself a cat person for the first 32 years of my life even before I got batty, I was opening up to the idea. I used to, I walked my friend's dog, whose name was Dolly Parton, uh, an Auss- a beautiful little Aussie shepherd named Dolly Parton. And so I started to open myself up much more to dogs. Yeah, probably around, that's probably around 31, 32. I don't remember how old, but then of course getting batty, I'm just full on. And of course, he's not your typical dog. I mean, he's he's far tougher than your typical dog. He's A very proud little chihuahua but definitely you know being a chihuahua and everything he's not like a dog dog as people think of them but uh you know it is so interesting though like that we do like wall ourselves off and it's like I'm a dog person I'm a cat person and like I just realized oh I'm neither one of those things but you know, people go into relationships where it's like, I'm a cat person. I don't know if I could date a dog person. Well, what's important is that you both love animals. And there's, and I'm not saying it's stupid to think in terms of cat person and dog person. Cause for many years, I kind of had it in my head that I couldn't date a girl who has a dog, not because I don't like dogs, not because I hated dogs, but because like in my mind, that was a certain sort of person, a certain sort of personality is like a girl with dogs. Like in the same way there's horse girls, like everybody knows what a horse girl is now. Like that, that sort, that very specific archetype of girl, who's really, really into horses, and you grew up knowing them. Sometimes girls are secret horse girls. Like I knew this girl that in, in high school that she was into like indie rock. She was, you know, very liter- She she was very into writing and reading. And I found out she was a secret horse girl. And I, not like she was hiding it, but it was just like she, she didn't. See, she was she didn't look or seem like the typical horse girl. Whereas, like, some horse girls actually look like horses, and and they're beautiful. Like, I'm not even saying that in a, like, the horse-faced insult. I'm saying, like, there's girls who, they look like horses, and they're also horse girls. Just going to have to believe me on this, and if you haven't noticed it, well, pay, pay more attention, huh? But, uh... You know, I was convinced in my head that like I couldn't date like a dog girl because that was a certain type of girl to me, and it meant I don't know, just it's such, it's such extroverted energy. It's like my friend Miles was joking about like how uh, when someone says I want to go to the river, it's a red flag, and like when I <laughs> when he said that, I immediately thought of like the sort of girl you date who like want like during the summer just wants to go to the river all the time, and it's like this social thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's a, it's like another aspect of that. And it's like the same type of girl, like the type of girl who has dogs and like wants to go to the river. I know I'm getting highly specific. And th- this isn't even a person I've ever been involved with myself. It's just something I've observed. But, you know, I'm at a point now where, like, yeah, I don't, I don't consider myself a cat person or a dog person. And, and it would seem very silly unless there's some, you know, because I, I don't know. Because now I'm at a point where, like, I'm like, I don't know if I would want to be surrounded by reptile tanks I have no problem with reptiles, but, you know, because there's a there's a reptile girl, too, or a reptile man. We all know about reptile man. He usually, it's usually his entire life. He makes a living, whether it's at the circus or <laughs> through the, the buying, trading, and selling of reptiles. We all know what a reptile man is. But it's like, I don't know that I would want to be surrounded by reptiles and all that upkeep, fish tanks. You know, there's all kinds of things that I, I wouldn't prefer but it shows you that you can change where it's like now it's like I wouldn't even think twice about somebody with a dog being in my life. Or for that matter, friends. Like even just like personal friends. Very few of my good friends have been dog owners either. Because again, I feel like it's a certain energy. And I feel like I'm in a sweet spot now. Because like having Batty, he's not your typical dog. He's not big. He has a big personality. He puffs his chest up but he's, he's in this kind of sweet spot where it's like, I I have all the benefits of having a dog, but yet he's also kind of a cat and kind of his own entity, just his own creature. I mean, sometimes I'll look at him and I'm like, what fantasy creature is this? But it, it does impress me that we can connect with other people over our love for animals and that you can even read about someone like Hitler. And if you detach yourself from all preconception and judgment, you realize that this man loved his dogs. And that doesn't have to be put on the same scale as his other actions and behavior. And it doesn't mean that should make you like him. It doesn't mean you need to be a fan of him because of that. It means that you're learning something about humanity. When you realize that Hitler loved his dogs, you learn something about humanity. You don't join the Hitler fan club. You learn something about our species. You know, Just think about leadership. You know, something that did bother me about Joe Obama bin Biden recently. Here's just a straight-up pundit take. But something that did bother me about Joe Obama bin Biden recently... Is where he, when he refused to take responsibility for what's going on in the stand of Afghani, you know, he's he's blaming his predecessors, and that's such a core trait of leadership to me is to take responsibility even when you didn't do it, because when you assume the mantle of president, leader, boss. It's not just that you yourself personally are now in that role, it's that you've become that role, and you also represent all of its history. And it is now your responsibility. That's why you're in that position. And there's a difference between taking blame and taking responsibility. I don't think Obama bin Biden should be blamed for the stand of Afghani, but he has to take responsibility. And I mean, I guess that's what he's he's trying to do. But he made a comment. I don't remember the exact words. I mean, he he might have even used the word blame. So he might as he might have what he said might have actually synced up with what I'm saying. But there was just a, there was a vibe to it. Again, it goes back to what I was saying last night about it's like it's not what you say; it's how you how they make you feel. People won't remember what you said. They'll remember how you made them feel. That quote that I invented, that Maya Angelou stole from me. No, but there's truth to that. It's like, it's not about like what Joe Obama bin Biden actually said. He clearly communicated in his tone, in his vibe, that he was not taking responsibility for the stand of Afghani. But by becoming president, he was telling the world, I'm willing to take responsibility to it, except our politics are, are just so shallow that you don't actually have to. And again, there's, I think it's really sick that we confuse... There's two things here. There's, there's, these, there's been this confusion of terminology and the meaning behind these terms. And it's people think that respo- taking responsibility means taking blame. The word responsibility has become so dirty, I guess, that it's like we think that taking responsibility means taking blame. It means taking responsibility for a failure too, even if you, even if somebody else is to blame, but when have you ever been impressed by somebody? Like I was saying the other day, how, like, if you've ever had a friend who's creative and they complain about somebody else ripping them off or they don't even have to be creative. They could be, it could be about anything. People will do it about haircuts. I I remember conversations in school where someone would be like, oh, oh, Mike got the same haircut I did after me. Girls do that a lot with like fashion and that kind of thing. So people will do it about anything. You don't have to be a creative person. But it's like, when have you ever been attracted to that? When have you ever been impressed when somebody's complaining about how they feel someone stole something? Even if somebody did steal something from them. When have you ever been impressed when someone's complaining about that? When have you ever been attracted to that? And I've complained about those things many times, you know. Um, But it's not... I know that it it, it doesn't feel attractive to be saying that. It goes back to that... The Buddhist precept of wrong speech where you know when you're doing that that it's wrong. It feels the same way you feel when you gossip or talk shit about somebody. When you're complaining about how somebody took something from you, how they stole your idea, how you did it first. Like you can feel inside that that's wrong speech. And the people who are hearing it feel that too. And they're not attracted by it, not attracted to it. And it's the same thing with blame. Like, even if there is somebody to blame, and sometimes you can't avoid it. Like, that's why we have trials. We need to blame this person. We need to make sure that... We need to legally blame this guy. Oh, this this guy, he... We think that he killed seven people. We need to... We need to legally blame him for this. But there's a reason why that process is so complicated. There's a reason why our legal system, which is... Part of it is designed to, to find out who we can blame, but in theory, it's set up in such a way that we really know for sure, or we get a really strong consensus that this is the person to blame. But it never feels like when someone's casually blaming somebody else, like I'm not going to say, like when a judge is like, we've, you know when a judge is like, you've been found guilty and I'm sentencing you to to multiple life sentences in prison. That's not the same thing as blaming. It's not like the judge is like, it's your fault. You know, it's not even, you know, that's why that's kind of the beauty of the legal system is that you can blame somebody, but it's in theory as objective as you can possibly get. Whereas like when someone's blaming somebody in a conversation, when they're like, so-and-so did such and such, It's just like everything else I'm talking about. We're like, when when does someone sound attractive doing that? Not even, not sexually attractive, just attractive. When does somebody ever sound attractive when they're doing that? When they're blaming somebody or refusing to take the blame? But it sucks because the thing is, is that it's like people who are sometimes to blame refuse to take the blame. Often they are. Which again is the reason we have a court system the reason we have a legal system because the guy who's accused of killing seven women he's gonna say I didn't do it he's gonna say I'm not the person to blame which is why we need a system to say no 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 we're we're sure (laughs) you're the guy to blame and even that's not always correct but it's just like when someone's blaming somebody you know it's just it's, it's an unattractive thing or when they're passing the blame that's another form of it it's it's passing the blame to somebody else which is You know, that's the vibe that Joe Obama bin Biden gave. No matter what his words were, the vibe that he gave across was someone else is to blame. And that's okay because somebody else is to blame. Absolutely. And that's why, like, these these reactionaries and conservatives who are blaming Joe Obama bin Biden need to reframe their argument and make it less about blame and more about responsibility. Because... We have conflated responsibility and blame. Just like we've conflated discipline and punishment. Because people say, oh, that kid broke a rule. He needs to be disciplined. That's what I heard growing up. Like we used to get D slips in school and it stood for uh, discipline slip. I always thought it meant detention slip because you would get detention. And I got a couple of those. I got a few of those. But uh, they would give you a D slip, which is funny. It's funny how like... <laughs> even in elementary school, like you develop your own little, it's like working in the government or something where you develop acronyms and your own little words for things. And it's like every kid in that school knew what a D slip was. But we didn't even remember what it meant. Like I thought it meant a, det- a detention slip. But they had D slips and C slips. And C slip stood for communication slip. And you didn't get detention for just one. I got plenty of those. And I was a pretty, you know, the thing is, everyone thought I was shy. But I still managed to accumulate. I still, I still managed to get in trouble, you know. And it, it almost always involved, like, me and my friends doing something. You know, I've told some stories on here. But they would give you a, a C-slip if you did something that was relatively... It was like a misdemeanor. A misdemeanor in my elementary school was a C-slip. Uh, but it, it stood for communication slip because it implied, like, there was a miscommunication or, or you communicated poorly. But it it wasn't necessarily something you said. It could have been something you did, too. But either way, it was a failure in communication. And I I believe if you got, like, three C-slips, you would automatically get a D-slip. They had a system in place where it's like, yeah, you couldn't just keep getting C-slips. You know, it's it's like a three strikes rule. So they're really teaching you the system early. I mean, it's ingenious, but they never explain that. The thing is, they never like bridge the gap. They never, they never break it down that, hey guys, this is actually how society works. And like that gets ingrained in people, but it would be really good for kids' minds to understand that, that like this system is kind of like our legal system. And you're getting a misdemeanor, but if you get enough misdemeanors, it's going to be a felony, which means detention. 15 minutes sitting in a room quiet and it's going to feel like 3 hours. You're going to feel like the entire world passed you by cuz that's what detention felt like. It's amazing like how many people leave the school within that first 15 minutes after the final bell rings. Like it's amazing how many people get picked up by their parents and leave cuz like even just 15 minutes staying after school, you feel like you're exiting into a, you know, a nuclear war zone where everything's been wiped out. Like nobody's there. You just see teachers like cleaning up and grading papers all by themselves in their rooms and you're just like, holy shit, 15 minutes of detention or whatever it was. I feel like it was 15 minutes. But yeah, discipline slip. Like I didn't even know. But then you're taught that. You're taught that discipline equals punishment. We would receive discipline slips to punish us. And you hear that phrase like, this boy needs to be disciplined. And sometimes that would mean like a paddling back in the day. Sometimes that would mean getting hit some kind of sanction against you. So it's it's funny that like... And then that plays out, like when people hear about discipline today, it's something that's forced on them. They think of discipline as either a punishment or something that is forced on them by their coach. You think about your football coach trying to instill discipline and it's not fun. You feel like you're doing it for him. And that's why like somebody like me, like even though I was fat when I played football, I was like an athletic fat guy. Not that I was like in shape, but I just mean like I, I still... I gave it my all, you know, and fortunately football has a, football's beautiful because it, it, you know, all body types are acceptable as long as you can do the job. Like you're fat. Oh, we're going to put you on the line. You're fat. Oh, you'd make a great nose tackle. You're fat. You'd make a great guard, an offensive guard. So football's beautiful in that way. Oh, you're, you're tiny and skinny cornerback. You know, you're tall and fast wide receiver. Football's amazing in that way. But, uh, you know, I was an athletic fat guy, I would say, but definitely fat. Why am I talking about that? Because, uh, oh, discipline. And like, I never felt like, like, even though I went to football practice and like, I spent years doing that, you'd think that that would have been instilled into me. You'd think that when I quit football, that I would have wanted to keep running or keep doing the things they made you do, but I was never doing it for myself. I was never like, I was just doing it because the coach made me do it so that I would be in the right condition to play the game that I wanted to play it was all about it was like a necessary evil like when the coaches are making you do wind sprints at the end of a hot summer day you're not like oh wow this is something that I could use myself to structure my life and feel better you're thinking oh this is absolute hell and I can't wait to I like get a slurpee but I'm doing this. I'm, I'm letting the coach put me through this hell because I really love the game of football. And I love being on a team. And I, in fact, in a weird way, it's like the fact that you're doing this all as a team makes it more palatable. Like it would like, which is why one of the punishments that my coaches, all, all my coaches would give, this is pretty universal, is like if you were goofing off and I was pretty serious, I didn't get in much trouble on the football field. They didn't have C-slips and D-slips on the football field. But I, I, my coach, I don't really, no, I do have a story. I probably told it before. I'll get into that. But for the most part, like at practice and stuff, I wasn't goofing off. I took football really seriously. But when the coach was mad at a kid, like if a kid was goofing off, the coach would say, run, just start running. And if it was serious enough, he would say, keep running until I tell you to stop. If it was just something minor, they would say, just run a lap. They go, run a lap, do it. And so it's funny that, like, making you run by yourself, like, even though they're making you run throughout practice, you're doing, we would have to run laps as a team. We would have to do wind sprints as part of the conditioning. But if you were forced to run by yourself, like, even though what you're doing is still, like, everything you're doing is physical, everything you're doing is causing you to lose your breath. But the idea of being forced to run by yourself. You know, you can see, like, they even have their own, like, C-slips and D-slips on the football field. Like, run a lap and come back. That's like a C-slip. Keep running until I tell you to stop. That's a D-slip. But you can see where, um, uh, you can see. Can't you see? No, but you can see where, like making somebody do that by themselves is even worse. So it's like, for me, like I, I didn't develop a discipline surrounding physical activity at that time because I was doing it for the coach. I was doing it because the coach made me and the coach was making me do it so that I could play this game that I love to play. And I, I will say that I did get in trouble one time and it was really bad. It was during a game and I w- it was a kickoff. And I, w- I think we were, yeah, we were the receiving team and i just completely wiped this guy out i mean it's illegal to even do i think in the nfl today but when you blindside when you blindside somebody on a kickoff like when you're the blocker on a kickoff and you completely blindside somebody i mean you knock them like like it's it's cartoonish like they fly off of their feet you just you you literally knock them off their heels And this guy, like, you know, I didn't, I didn't like blindside him from behind or like the side, but he just didn't see me. He had no idea I was there. He was focused on getting to the ball. And I just, I just, I didn't even do anything. It was like, when you're at that point, all you have to do is just kind of stand there and put your arms out and you will just, it's like clotheslining somebody. And I just knocked him on his ass. And this was like 1998. And so it was like the height of DX in, in the WWF suck it. Like, me and all my... Every boy in my school was going around doing the, the crotch chop. Going, suck it. Oh, yeah, you don't like that? Suck it. And so, it, there's pictures of us that, like, our moms took. Like, our moms didn't know what it even was. They knew it was some wrestling thing. But here we are with our hands directed to our crotches. And we're going around saying, suck it. <laughs> like, we, we were addicted. Every boy in my school... Like it really, it it bonded boys across social groups. Like when pro wrestling was at its peak in the late nineties during the attitude era, like I can't, I can't even count. Like you, you could just be in the locker bay and people you didn't like people you never talked to. You'd be talking about WWF raw the night before and you'd just be like, yeah, dude. And then, and then triple H came out and you went suck it. And you're like, yeah, you know, it's like fucking stupid, but the, those are the best conversations I've ever had in my life, you know. And uh, but anyway, so I knocked this guy on his ass. So keep in mind, like that this is during that time when we're all just—it's almost like suck it became a like a habit. Doing the suck it crotch chop just became a habit. Like someone's taking a picture of you. Oh, suck it! And I found this picture online. It's amazing. I almost thought it was me, except I've never been to Stonehenge. But he looks just like me around the same age I was at the time wearing clothes that I would have worn and he's doing the crotch chop in front of Stonehenge by himself. Like his family was taking a picture of him on a family trip to Stonehenge and like Stonehenge is behind him and he, and he's not just doing like the suck it pose but it's the one that like where you put your, your wrists in an X because there's the one where you just like put your hands down by the sides of your crotch but like the other one is where you put your hands in an X and then so it's like The reverse hand is on each side. And so he's doing that one. So kids, I mean, if if you're willing to do suck it in front of Stonehenge, I mean, that just shows you that we couldn't stop. Like we could not resist the urge. So anyway, like I couldn't resist the urge either. And I, so I leveled this guy on a kickoff and get, get, and like, I felt like celebrating because it really does bring out something bestial and primitive in you. Where when you do something well in football, like you see where like football players celebrate excessively in the NFL, like people do one small thing and celebrate, but like, unless you've been in that position, like, and I wasn't that celebratory, you know, I wasn't a ham on the football field. I wasn't, I didn't score touchdowns, you know, but it's like, still, when you do something like that, you almost want to pose. You do want to pose. You want to do something. Like, you want to make some sort of gesture that says, yeah, I'm the king right now. In this moment, I just did something that makes me the king. And guess what I did after I leveled this guy? I did suck it. And I didn't think much of it. It seemed pretty subtle. You know, I thought it was pretty subtle. Like, I'm in a bunch of football gear. It's like, you know, I'm not very flexible. It's like, so I just, I kind of like just did suck it. And, uh, I'm going back to the huddle and like and we and two like our player he ran back he, I don't think he scored a touchdown but he, he ran he got a lot of yardage on this kick return. So we were happy. We, the team was really excited because we just we made a big play as part of this. And then I look over as I'm going back to the huddle and I see that a flag's out. I see the yellow flag on the field. And I I see that it came from the ref who was nearest to me. And he's kind of a young guy because the thing is, it amazes me. They have this whole like system of referees, volunteer referees who would do these games. But I look over and there's a flag and I see the referees meeting. And I I immediately know, I know that it's going to be me. And our team is all looking over there. Nobody knows because nobody on on the team saw me do suck it. And the whole team is looking at the referees because they're all confused because it seems pretty clear it's going to be against us. You know, you you just figure that out. Like if you watch the NFL and you see a flag, the announcers know immediately who it's going to be on. You can just tell. It's like you have some like psychic ability. Like whether you saw an actual penalty take place or not, you have this kind of psychic ability where you know the flag is either going to be against your team. You just kind of know. And... So we, we can all just feel that it's going to be against us. And I know I'm not saying anything, but I know it's going to be against me. And, uh, (laughs) the young ref, the guy who threw the flag, he's, he's talking to these two old refs, like the two refs he's talking to are older guys. So they clearly don't know what suck it is. And the young ref, I, I saw he had sideburns and like a chin goatee, like just like a lot of guys had, like I had one when I was old enough where you just have like hair on your chin. He had that going on. And I see him, though, explaining something to the, to the other refs. And then his hands go down into the suck it move. Like he was explaining to them what I did. And then we had this running back named Hollywood. His name, he, he was like this, he was like a little Deion Sanders. He was, he was this like a little black kid. And his nickname was Hollywood because for reasons you can imagine, he was, he loved to celebrate. He was a total ham. He wore a gold chain. Like he, like this is, you know, this is before every NFL player was wearing like their, their jewelry while they play like today. Like he would, he wore this gold chain and the Hollywood nickname, like I was on multiple teams with him. His nickname was Hollywood before I ever met him. And his nickname continued to be Hollywood long after that. Everybody just knew him as Hollywood and he loved it. I mean, think about being him. Think about being like an extremely hammy little kid playing running back and the fact that everybody gives you the nickname hollywood that's amazing but but hollywood goes <laughs> we all see the ref do the suck it gesture to the other refs to explain what i did and hollywood goes who was doing suck it who was doing suck it and i go me i just said it and he looked at me and goes man <laughs> And, and uh, he, he didn't, you know, you know, he didn't get in my face or anything, you know, like, like I mean, I have to say, like, I'm not to talk my 12 year old self up, but like, you know, like, I always tried to show a lot of respect for my teammates and they showed respect to me. And so I'd like to think that, like, when Hollywood found out it was me, that he was shocked. Like, first of all, because I was not the kind of player who would do things like that. And so I think he was just like, what? Like, like you did, you did suck it. And then sure enough, 15 yard penalty. Sure enough, personal foul. And my coaches were just like, what? Like, it's like, like, just like Hollywood. It's like, because my coaches, like, that was the coach that I've talked about on here before, uh, Big Dog, former drill sergeant, just like mean, just tough, mean black guy who wore a cowboy hat. And as a little kid who grew up in a heavily white environment, I mean, I think it's good for you to be in that situation, like to be with a guy like that where it's like, you know, when you want to talk about race and stuff like that, because I mean... Playing team sports really did give you the most experience you're going to get, the most close camaraderie you're going to get with black people. You know, it's just the reality. Like, like I mean, anybody I feel like who grew up in the sort of environment I grew up in, the sort of area I grew up in, that's just the truth. Like team sports are going to be one of the most unifying factors in your interaction with certain races. It's just how it is. Somebody might've had a different story. I don't know, but I know what my story is. And I know it's true for a lot of people. And so like having this like really intimidating former drill sergeant, who's also a black man, like scream at you. I think that's good for you because you realize that he's, what he's doing is he's making you tougher. He's making you a better football player. Like you realize that this isn't just some random guy harassing me. Like I'm here for a reason. He's here for a reason. We have a common purpose. We're simulating warfare. Football is a simulation of warfare. This guy wants me to be tough, so I mean, I think that's good for a person. It's good. It's good for a person to have a, a middle-aged black man scream at your face. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't think he knew what to think. You know, I don't think Big Dog knew what to think, and even the assistant coach. His name was Eric, but they called him. Uh, they called him something else. But the assistant coach. He was like this big fat guy, also black named Eric, which you don't meet too many black Eric's, but so I don't know. That was a great year. Like that was just a good, that was a good team. Like we, I think we ended up making it to the playoffs and stuff, but the coaches just had no idea what to think. Like they had probably never heard a suck it. We just got a huge penalty on me, which is humiliating. And then we had a halftime break after that. And the coaches, I think we were losing or something, and the coaches were really fired up. And we were standing in this tunnel, and the coaches were like, "You gotta get it in order. You gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta get it together. We gotta win this game." And then Coach Eric, I, I wish I could remember his nickname, because there was Big Dog, which was Mike, Coach Mike, the head coach, and then the the assistant coach. His name was Eric something, but he had a, he had another nickname, and it it had to do with his weight. Like, his nickname clearly corresponded to his weight. You know, I want to say it was Bear, but the coach's son was also nicknamed Bear. But I feel like maybe they did that deliberately. Like, the coach had two sons who had real names. Big Dog had two sons who had real names, like just normal names. But he had nicknames. Just like he had the nickname Big Dog, his sons had nicknames. He called his oldest son Bo, which I thought was interesting. That wasn't his son's name. His son's name was like Justin or something. And he called him Bo. I don't know if that was B I don't know if that was French or just B O or what, but he was kinda he was in better shape and he I think he played quarterback for his team. So maybe maybe he meant it like he's kinda he's kinda like the handsome quarterback son, I don't know what. But then the other son was huge. He must have been like, you know, six feet tall, two hundred and eighty pounds already as a teenager and he was obviously a lineman but he was called bear like big dog's big son was called bear but i want to say that the coach who kind of resembled coach eric who kind of resembled bear i want to say that they also called him bear because all these people were close like all these guys were close you know they're these i mean they're these black guys who coach youth football in a very small community like that that's, that has very few black people in it. Like these people are going to be close. So I feel like his nickname was bear also, but anyway, so coach Eric possibly nicknamed bear. All this is, this is really important to me <laughs> getting these details, right. is important to me. Uh, so he, he suddenly butts into this pep talk where we're big dogs screaming at us that we need to like get our asses in gear. And then coach Eric just steps in and he goes, and I don't want to see any of this. And he does a humping maneuver. Like, he rolls his hips, and keep in mind, he's he's like 300 pounds. And he rolls his hips, and he does a hump. And he looks at me, and he goes, you hear me? He's like, I don't want to see any more of this. And he does a hump again, and everybody's cracking up. Like, our entire team, like, I I could hear Hollywood laughing like a hyena. You know, high-pitched, like, we were dying. Because here, like... (laughs) Here, this like this massive coach thinks that I did the humping maneuver like like because like they don't know what suck it is. They don't watch pro wrestling. They don't know what DX is. They don't know what Degeneration X is like so they don't know about suck it. They're thinking that I did like a humping maneuver, which is even funnier. Like I've never done that in my life. Like even when people were running around doing that as a joke back in the day, like people used to always run around doing like humping maneuvers as a joke. Like I never even did that back then. I did suck it. But the fact that this coach thinks that I did a humping maneuver, I mean, like, we were just dying. Like, the entire team was just, we were just like sitting there with our water, just, you know, like, like, and, you know, and he, and he honestly, like, I, I again, like, I think because it was me, I kind of got a pass. Like, they didn't bench me. Cause sometimes if a player did something like that, they would bench him for a little bit, you know, just punish them. But they didn't punish me, which is good. But, Coach Eric, Bear, whatever his name is, he pointed right at me and he was like, you hear me? Like, 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 what are you thinking? Like, no more of this. Like, as if I'm just going to do that from now on. Like, trust me, like, having a referee see that I did that. But it shows you, like, I didn't, it's not like I really even planned to do that. It's not like I was thinking, oh, if I make a a good move today in football, I'm going to do suck it. You just instinctively want to do a celebration. And when you watch too much pro wrestling, that's what you do. I did learn a lot about leadership from those guys. You know, what got me going on that was just leadership discipline, how discipline has been equated with punishment in our society today. And that makes people not want to get disciplined for themselves. You know, because I did, I, you know, playing football those years didn't make me disciplined because it was a means to an end. But when you see discipline as the means and the end or something like that, and you do it for yourself. It's an entirely different beast. Because again, that's taking responsibility for yourself. Like when I was doing wind sprints for my football coaches, I wasn't taking responsibility for doing wind sprints. I was doing it because a guy would scream at me. And they were good leaders. You know, those guys, I look at them and they were they were great leaders, some of them. Like those guys that I was just talking about, Big Dog and Coach Eric, a.k.a. Bear, now that I think about it, I'm almost positive that they both had the same nickname because I, I remember being just as confused about it then as I am now because Big Dog would go, Bear, Bear. And his his son would help with football practice. He would come to help. It was a family affair. Like his wife would show up. Like his whole family was involved in our team. It was amazing. Like I, I really loved that show. I loved the show version of Friday Night Lights. Somehow, I've never seen the original movie, but I loved the show Friday Night Lights. Up until the end, like when it changes too much, like it's one of the best little like teenage soap operas I've ever seen. One of the only teenage sopra- soap operas, sopras, soap operas I've ever seen. I loved it though. Like at that time, when I, when I watched the entire series, what I would do is I would, I couldn't handle weed at the time. So I, like, and weed was legal. Weed had recently become fully legal. And so they started to make this CBD that had like a little bit of THC. It had like just enough THC to where if you have no tolerance, you just feel the slightest something behind your eyes. So I would sit there smoking a lot of it. So just like gradually build up like a barely perceptible high, which is honestly all I really look for if I do smoke weed anymore. I just want to know that it's there. I don't want to be high out of my mind. I just want to know that it's there. I just need that. I need that slight indication of contrast. And I'm not high right now. I, I barely ever do these shows high. Once in a while I do, but I, it's. I'll start doing it and then I just turn it off because like hearing yourself talk when you're high isn't fun. <laughs> uh, sometimes it is every once in a while it is but and I, and I have done episodes on here that I love when I've been just stoned out of my mind but believe it or not these rambling episodes are almost never stoned but I I, w- I would smoke this just like the CBD that had like traces of THC like just more than the average CBD but just enough to where you could kind of feel it behind your eyes and I would watch Friday Night Lights and I would practice guitar And I spent like an entire spring doing this and I watched the entire series. But the thing about that show was I loved it and I knew at every moment, I knew that I was watching a ridiculous teen drama, a soap opera. And I didn't care about that. But every once in a while, like at the end of an episode, they would do a PSA, like almost like how the old GI Joe cartoons used to do PSAs. Like, don't, don't play with fire. Don't, don't leave the burner on in your house. They would do that at the end of some episodes, but they were about texting and driving. They were clearly aimed at teenagers. These PSAs were clearly aimed at teenagers, and there was one time where I remember, I think I got even a little bit too high off of some of this CBD, and it showed one of these PSAs, and I think it was the the texting and driving one, and I was like, and I think they used Friday Night Lights characters to do it, kind of like how the GI Joe PSAs used GI Joe characters. And I just had this moment where I was like, I'm watching a show for teenagers. I'm watching a show for teenage girls. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it was just, it was a moment where I was sitting there like practicing guitar riffs, smoking light THC. And I was just like, holy shit, I'm watching a show for teenagers, for teenage girls, but that was a good show. Friday, Friday Night Tikes was good, too, which was a documentary style. Like, that was a reality show about guys who coach youth football. And there was another coach, Eric, who was black on that. There was a coach, Eric, on Friday Night Tykes. His name was Eric. And he wore a shirt that had—it was like a black shirt that just had a big image of a gummy bear on it. And at that point in time, I was completely in the throes of a gummy bear addiction. So I was like, that's black me. I black, me. <laughs> now, seriously, though, like I, I was watching Friday Night Tikes and I was like, his name's Coach Eric. He's really passionate about youth football and he loves gummy bears so much that he has a giant gummy bear on the front of his shirt. I was like, that's me. But anyway, I mean, sometimes, yeah, no, anyway, enough about that. But, you know, just respecting your coaches. I mean, Friday... Did I have more to say about Friday Night Lights? I, I feel like I should or I could have. I don't know. It was a great show. I enjoyed watching it. Up until the... Up until it like changed... Where, like, it was an entirely group of kids... It was an entirely different group of kids at the end. Like, everybody else had graduated. And that last... I don't think I finished watching the last season. But I did love that show, Friday Night Lights. But yet, I've never seen the movie. With Billy Bob Thornton and all that. I'm just a show... I'm a, I'm on team... Friday Night Lights TV show, not on team movie. But going back to like respecting leadership and understanding leadership, that's one of the aspects of team sports that's so important. And you don't realize it at the time. But when you look back at your experiences with team sports, like in addition to what it does for you with your peers and what it's like to be on a team where you, you're all truly coordinated, you're all collaborating. You know, football is highly structured and and well strategized and you come up with like you think about a playbook and a playbook is a battle plan and you have to study it and you have to learn it and there's a coded system like there's a coded system in the huddle where even as as kids like there's a certain age you reach i want to say it's probably like 11 or 12 where they start allowing the quarterback if he's a good quarterback to start calling plays himself but it's a coded system And if there's a given number in it, it means you're supposed to block left. Like as a lineman, I hear like the amazing thing about this system is that like the quarterback will say something that sounds like gibberish of like words and numbers. And those those words and numbers correspond to what each position is supposed to do. So like I can't even think of an example of what a quarterback might say. But it's like let's say if the number nine is in there. That means block left if you're a lineman. If if the number seven is in there, it means block right. But those numbers or, you know, different parts of the code also correspond to different positions, which means the wide receiver runs this route. The running back does this. It's amazing. And the fact that you're getting little kids to understand this, and a lot of them are just running around not knowing what they're doing, but the fact that any of them do understand it, and that comes from coaching, that comes from good coaching. But in addition to just that collaboration between your peers and working together through these battle plans to get a specific outcome together, and you realize, too, that when there's problems between teammates, because there was one point where, like, two of my teammates, I think they were fighting over a girl. I think there was some issue. Like, they got in a fight at practice. But, like, when your teammates are fighting amongst themselves, that's a recipe for disaster. You know, that breaks the chain. But, you know, football overall, like if you have decent coaches, is going to be way more a process of collaboration, even though it's a competition against other teams. And to some degree, you're competing with your teammates to, like, get a starting position. Still, it's, it's, it, there's far more greater—because even, like, playing another team is collaboration. Like, you think about playing another team and it's like, oh, here's—these are my enemy. This is my enemy. I want to beat these guys. But you know what? They decided to show up here and use the same rules that you have. You guys have made a mutual decision to follow the same rules and play the same game together. And even though you're competing and one of you wants to win, the fact that you we all showed up here in the same gear with numbers on our jerseys and different colors, and we all developed strategies and we, we're all willing to play the same rules and have these in theory, objective referees make sure that it it happens. You know, that's, that itself is an act of collaboration, even though the event itself is a competition. But going back to the leadership idea, you know, it's just, you, when I look back at some of the coaches I had and I quit football like earlier than maybe I should have, but at the same time, woulda, coulda, shoulda, like I, the reason I quit football is because I was getting, it was getting harder and harder to balance like art and creativity and my growing interest in music. It was harder and harder to balance that. And I knew that I didn't have a long-term future in football. So it was just a matter of, you know, I probably regret it more if I had stayed in football at that point. But anyway, like when I do look back at the coaches I had, I can tell like who was a good coach or who was a good leader. And like big dog was the scariest coach I ever had. Because he would just scream at you, and he'd been a drill sergeant earlier on in his life. But I look back on him as probably the best coach. And his teams tended to be successful, and they tended to respect him. I mean, I think they all did. Honestly, I think that all of the people on that team truly respected Big Dog and all the coaches on that team. And the fact that his family was such a part of it, too, because well, that's what made me think of Friday Night Lights, because in Friday Night Lights, like one of the main characters is the coach and he's the new coach in, in this small Texas town. So everybody's like, you better live up to. Uh, no, that's not how they talk in Texas. They talk like, yo, you better. Uh, oh, you're the new coach in town, huh? You, well, you better uh, you better live up to all those championships we got from the previous coaches so like part of the show friday night lights is about the pressure that's on this new coach and his daughter's like this hot teenager who ends up dating the quarterback and but she's like a good girl like she's not like she she's attractive but she's like a good girl and she's i mean i'm talking about a teenage girl but i'm sure the actress was like 25 how dare you But, uh, but I mean, she's the hot girl either way. You know, it's like she's the archetypical, like, she's not the hot girl. She's she's like the cute, she's like the girl that you're supposed to want to marry on the show. That's kind of she's the coach's daughter, and he's a great dad, but he's struggling because he he wants to, he wants his team to be successful. But his family's involved with everything. Like, his daughter and his wife are involved with the team. And that's a real thing. I mean, that's not just made up for the show because that's like, like, Big Dog's wife was like his you know, his secretary and not in a demeaning way. It was just like, she wanted to be involved. She wanted to do as much as she could to help his team out. And his sons, like his sons would, would go to their own football practices because they were older than we were. And then they would come to our practice and help with the drills. Like they would hold up pads. They would do whatever big dog asked. Like he had, his, his family was well-disciplined and so like, I, I can't even imagine that like you, but you know what they wanted to be there too. You know, you think about like, they got done with their own football practice and they go straight from there to their dad's youth football team to help him. But it's like, they love football. They probably, it wouldn't even shock me if those guys were coaches today. Cause you see that a lot, a lot of, you see that in the, in the NFL where a lot of coaches, their sons become coaches, grandsons in some cases. It's, it really becomes a whole kind of class, a whole like caste system almost where it's like people tend to come from like coaches often come from backgrounds. Like a lot of coaches, their brothers are also coaches, their fathers, the different relatives. It's an amazing thing. And uh, so it wouldn't shock me at all. Cause I mean, for example, like there was this, this kid that I went to school with, he was a little bit older, but his dad always coached. They had a great name. Their last name was Grim which is great. Like that. having Grim on the back of your jersey is amazing. But uh, everything's amazing. But uh, his dad was a coach forever. And then I found out that he's now a college football coach. The son, who's a couple years older than me, he's now a college, or at least he was a few years ago, he was a college football coach. So it's, it's again, like if you grow up in an environment where your dad's a coach, and if your dad's a coach and he's a good one, that's his entire life for a, a big chunk of the year. He's planning for the season, you know, and then when, when it's football season, that's his life and his family has to understand that. So if you grew up in that environment, you know, it, um, so I wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me at all. If big Dog's sons went into coaching and especially if you respect your father, if you respect him as a leader and he is a leader, like he is a a good coach. Cause I had coaches that I didn't respect. And I look back, like there was a guy, his name was Ed Wiggins. I had Ed Wiggins as a coach. I almost had him two different years. I had him one year, and our team was good, and he liked me. He, um, he liked me, so it really had nothing to do with whether I got along with him. It had nothing to do with success. I didn't consider him a good coach. He wasn't a very good leader. There was always something kind of like... He just seemed kind of deceptive or dishonest and other people felt that way too. Like the parents didn't really like him. Like he wasn't a horrible man. Like he wasn't like a pervert. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just somebody where you didn't really respect his leadership. He kind of reminded me of like what you would expect from a politician today. Like it's for the same kind of reason. It's like I know this guy's in this position and you know maybe he kind of knows what he's doing but there's just something about him I don't like. And so you'd have coaches like that and it's interesting that like he had all the markings of a good leader but he wasn't. And his, his team didn't respect him. And, uh, you know, so... And I had other coaches, too. I had coaches where our team sucked. Like, I, I was on a team one year... I don't know if we won a single game. I think it was my first year. I think we did win one game. We There was something where we ended up winning one game. But, like, our first four games, we didn't score a single touchdown... And then we ended up scoring our first touchdown, like, maybe four games in. And we, we celebrated like we won the Super Bowl. Like, I think we lost that game. But the fact that we finally scored a touchdown, it was like Little Giants, if you've seen that movie. Like, we were this group of misfits. Like, we didn't have very many players on our team. So, we were, like, under, uh, understaffed. We didn't know. We were super young. Since that was my first year, we were probably nine years old. So we were just, we were, we truly had no idea what we were doing. Our coach was a brand new coach. Cause that's the thing like coaches like big dog. He'd been coaching youth football for years and years. And that's one of the reasons why he had such a tight system down. But it's like, if you had a coach and it was their first year coaching youth football, they're improvising, they're figuring this out. And so that first year that I played, like our coach was brand new. And, uh, We couldn't even score a touchdown. And then when we finally did, even though we lost the game, just the fact that we scored a touchdown, I'll I'll never forget that feeling. I'll never forget watching this kid, Nate Lee, run down the field. And we all started following him. Like, we'd already made our blocks. Like, we already knew he was going to score. And we just followed him, like, you know, like a, a parade. And we were so happy. Like, 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 I can't even explain how happy we felt to have scored our first touchdown. And, like, that's when people talk about team sports being toxic. People talk about, you know, like, toxic masculinity and, you know, or even just they, they talk about, like, the fact that kids shouldn't have a coach yell at them. Oh, footballs cause concussions. It's not that those things shouldn't be discussed, but it's like, if I could transmit even this memory of that touchdown to them, they might slightly understand. I would hope. Because that feeling, like to be a bunch of boys who have been working hard on something and you're getting nowhere and to finally have that breakthrough where Nate Lee just shoots down the field and he scores a touchdown. His brother got killed like a year later. Like his brother who I knew His brother would come to our games and he would come to our practices. I think he played football on another team because he was older. He, Nate's brother and some kids in his apartment complex were playing with a gun and they taped a laser pointer onto it. And they were just pretending to like aim the laser pointer at each other, like they were going to shoot each other. Well, you can figure out what happened. His brother got shot and died. That was about a year after that. Um, Isaac Lee was his name long forgotten to time, except by his family. They were an interesting family too, because the dad was black. The mom was white and they lived in Duval, which has been very developed now. But Duval is at that time was very rural to us. If you live closer to Seattle, Duval was kind of the middle of nowhere. But yeah, uh, Nate Lee, he scored the, the first touchdown I was ever a, a part of. And seeing that kid, I mean, I, I gotta, I gotta catch myself from crying right now because I'm just like thinking about that feeling of score of watching Nate score that touchdown. All of us celebrating like we just won the world, and then like you think about that guy's brother playing with a gun and a laser pointer at his apartment complex, like innocently. Like these these guys weren't like gang members. Like these guys weren't bad kids at all. They were just they lived out in the middle of nowhere. They lived, you know. You know, they, they, they were from, you know, pretty far out there. I mean, I think they were living in an apartment complex closer, but they were from Duval. And, uh, just the fact though that like his brother like shot and just, just kids playing around, you know, and he died. I didn't know him at that point. Like I was, I I was never on his team again, but if you could You know, transmit that. But the fact that like even that tragedy, even though it happened like sometime after I was on on the team with Nate, the fact that that happened to my teammates brother, like beyond the fact that it's tragic that a kid that I kind of peripherally knew got shot and killed on accident, like that that was my my former teammates brother, like I can only imagine what it feels like to serve in the military. I can only imagine like these other forms of brotherhood that you establish. Cause like when you're nine years old and the kid who scored the first touchdown that you were ever a part of, like when his brother dies, you feel that on a deeper level, even though I never talked to the kid ever again, I never saw the kid ever again. It still, it's just, it's like, you think about that and like, that's your teammate. It's like you become, there is a family aspect to it. It's not like I went to the funeral and nobody, he went to a different school, like, you know, I never, like I said, I never had any contact with that family again, but it was on the news. And, you know, I still remember the brother, like before one of our games, we were talking to some guys from the team we were about to play. And Nate's brother, Isaac, the one who got killed, like he walked over and he said to the other team, he said, we're going to smash you. And I think we got smashed. But I remember Isaac just saying to the other team, he used the word smash. He said, we're going to smash you. So, you know, when they were showing his picture on the news that this kid died from this gunshot, I was like, they were showing his picture. And I immediately thought of that moment when he was like, we're going to smash you. And I like we, like his, like he, I like that he was referring, that just shows you too something about football where he saw our team as his. And I think he played on another, another team. I think Isaac played on his own team. But he saw his brother's team as his team, too. And he said, we are going to smash you. And that tells you a lot about the psychology of it, you know, of, like, fans. It's why when people are, like, the thing I hate is when people who don't like sports or football will be like, what do you mean we? Like, the Seahawks score a touchdown. And, like, the same sort of person who calls football sports ball, that same person who, like, develops some unjustified misgiving against sports because of jocks or whatever that person like I've heard people say this many times where they're just I mean they're not trying they're not serious they're just trying to be like little jerks about things but like they'll say things like well you can't take credit oh so the team that you like scored a touchdown you weren't a part of that what do you mean we but it's like football players themselves will tell you that like the audience is an important factor. Like in Seattle, it's a huge factor. The twelfth man isn't just a marketing ploy, although people will see it that way. It actually increases energy and engagement, and that does something for a team. There's a reason why home field advantage is a real thing, and part of it is because there's this energy pooled there. There's a we. It's not just the team playing at their own. It's not just a geographic thing where like, oh, we didn't have to travel for this. You are in your own environment with your own supporters who see themselves as an extension of you. And I mean, I I don't want to get too out there with it, but I'm willing to, which is that I think even watching a team from home contributes psychically to their performance. Not that you individually, and you can see how superstitious sports fans are. Like there's a guy who lives here who I talked to. Like when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl some years back, and then the Seahawks went back to the Super Bowl the next year but lost. Like I remember this guy saying how like he cooked the exact food in the exact, and he used the same exact process. And that's even something like they make fun of on football gear commercials, or you know, if you watch commercials during football season, they constantly make fun of the superstition of football fans, where it's like, oh, I was wearing this shirt when they won, there was a commercial where like, there's a guy who like, he, he hangs out in the, he doesn't watch the game. Like he has the game on in another room because he feels like if he's watching the game, the team won't do as well. And honestly, like that, even though that's a commercial and commercials are stupid, that's real. Like you do end up kind of thinking that way. If you're really into a team, I do, I do things like that myself. I have my own weird little superstitions on game day i mean something as simple as blue friday the fact that the friday before every seahawks game it's blue friday and if you're a fan you're supposed to wear some seahawks gear and if you like and there are days where i've like it's been a friday before a seahawks game and i i find that i don't i realize that i've been going about my day not wearing anything seahawks related and i suddenly it's like i i freeze up i'm like oh shit i got to put something on i got to put a hat on i got to put a shirt on you know, so it's like it, that superstition is built into it, which should be taken a little more seriously. Like, like the fact that otherwise, I mean, the word rational gets abused so much, but otherwise rational people do that from all backgrounds. Like, you know, I'm probably not the average football fan, but everybody from the average football fan to me, to everybody else has that same superstitious impulse. And I don't think it's meaningless. I don't think it's useless. I don't think it's pure delusion. I don't think that the team is going to win or lose just because you did or didn't do something, but there's something going on. I think that's how I'd put it. I wouldn't try to define it or know exactly what it is, but it is one of those situations where you go, something is going on. Something is causing me to feel this way. Something is giving me this almost religious attraction to this and i've developed this set of rules and other people have, have have developed this set of rules and i don't typically watch football with other people but i've gone to bars especially like when the seahawks were doing extremely well it was really fun to watch them at bars at sports bars because again, there's that social energy and the, everybody in the room is is focused on the same task, like the power of that. Everybody in that room, except for maybe like somebody's brother-in-law from Cleveland, but everybody in that room is cheering for the same team and wants the same outcome. It, it is like an extension of being on a team with somebody. There is a we to it. But I went to this one bar that was near my house, a real, a true blue... Seahawks bar and I mean blue and I, a friend and I went there to watch it and he and I were both fanatics we were both Seahawks fanatics who grew up with them and everything and uh, even individual bars devel- develop their own superstitions and rituals where at this particular bar like the group of people who go there every weekend to watch the Seahawks this one guy brings a football he brought a football with him and I could tell that this is something they do. It's not just a one off. He he brings a football and he passes it around. He doesn't throw it. He's not throwing a football around inside of a bar with all these drinks and people. He just passes it around and he, he ha- we didn't know him. But we he knew that we were fans. He knew that we were there for the same reason and he just he handed us the ball and he said just put your hands on it. Just you know just get a feel for it. This probably sounds so insane to somebody, but it made complete sense, and like I laughed, you know. I I thought it was, I loved it because it was, it was so ridiculous, but I loved it and I understood it, and just the fact that like we we passed it around like a circle, like we like we passed it around the entire bar and like he just he felt that everybody in the bar should just kind of like just just kind of like palm it in your hands like just take the football and just kind of like grip it and just kind of like get a feel for it and then pass it along to the next person that rules i don't care i don't care what you think about anything that rules and it's funny and it's fun and it does feel <laughs> and it does feel meaningful You know, it, you do feel like, not like the game is going to, not like winning and losing depends on you handling this ball, but it's like this kinetic energy, like getting everybody, there's nothing perverse about it. Just getting everybody to, to, to feel this football. And it makes the game more real too. Who knows? Like this guy, he's just, he's probably just some drunk. Who's like, I'm going to bring my football to the bar, but he wanted everybody to touch it. And like, there's, that's magical, you know, that's, that's a ritual, and so the fact that like that bar had developed that ritual, that bar had its own little practice. And you know of course I'm going to bring up the mafia again. And like studying the early Sicilian mafia, you'll find that even though they did the same rituals, like like for example their induction ceremonies, they all the mafia always tends to follow the same basic format, but like different towns in Sicily developed their own twist. Like for example, like the The town that came under investigation in 1883 for controlling the local mining industry and like the the mafia had split into like warring factions and were killing each other, but they interrupted a mafia induction ceremony in that town, Favara, and the guys were wearing hoods, which is kind of Masonic. And there's not any real evidence that the mafia adopted Masonic practices for its own ritual. We don't really know. There's similarities, but there's, there's similarities between every secret society. Any, any men's secret society is going to have similar rituals. Just, I think it's just because there's only so much, especially back then, that you could pull from. They didn't have footballs to pass around back then. <laughs> we, went to the, we, we, interrupted, we interrupted this mafia induction ceremony, and they were passing around a football. No, but they they interrupted this induction ceremony in this town called Favara that was known as a... It was an important town in the local mining industry. And the guys being inducted or the guys participating were wearing these hoods. And that's never come up at any other time in mafia history. I have never come across a single example of an induction ceremony where they wore hoods. But you know what those hoods were from? Those hoods were part of the local mining industry. Like, in the mining business they had these certain men who were like, they were kind of like traveling supervisors and security. Like they kind of, and the mafia naturally put their own people in that position. Because like the mafia isn't going to put its own people in the mines. Like if you're a made member of the mafia, they're not going to be like, well, here's a pickaxe. But they're going to put you in a position. They're going to give you employment. And what's perfect is being this like roaming supervisor. So the mafia would put its people into that position. I can't remember what it's, I can't remember what it's called. It's it's probably similar to like what we would call a foreman in construction today. Like you think about a foreman, like a union foreman, like the guy who basically supervises and kind of represents what's going on at a building site. So I think these guys they were kind of like foremen. I think that's exactly what they were. But they had a different name because it was old sicily in a different industry but they wore those hoods so you can see where the mafia incorporated these hoods that like a certain profession wears and because that profession was closely linked to the mafia this one particular town wore hoods and there's another town in sicily where you know cuz they they prick somebody's finger with either a knife or a pin and there was one family that had a golden pin They had this golden pin that they used for every single induction ceremony. And and then when a boss would die or step down, the next boss would inherit the pin. It was important for every single member of this one mafia town, this one mafia family in this town, to be inducted using the same exact golden pin that previous generations had. And that's not something you see in other families. Like, I've never come across another example of that in the mafia where they used the same tool to draw blood at every single induction. I've never seen any evidence that they ever used the same exact object. But it shows you how, like, individual towns who are nonetheless part of the same mafia, like, they're all part of the umbrella mafia organization, and they all recognize each other as such. Like, these aren't independent groups. These are all part of the collective mafia that... Is all throughout Western Sicily, but you can see where in individual towns, even though they're following the same ceremony as every other town, they develop their own little rituals. They, they, this town, because they were involved in the mining industry and they wore these hoods, they incorporated those hoods into their induction, into their ceremony. This other town, they felt it was necessary to use the same golden pin for obvious symbolic reasons. And the fact that every single member's blood was drawn with this exact golden pin. I mean, that itself is almost like, that itself emphasizes blood brotherhood. Kind of like people exchanging blood. Like you think about secret societies and even little kids for that matter becoming blood brothers by putting their wounds together. You know, using that same pin is kind of a symbolic form of that. And so it's just like football bars where like... Even though everybody is there to support the Seahawks, a different bar will have its own little group of people with their own little ritual where they pass around a football during every game. And it's not even a coincidence. I know it sounds absurd to be like the Mafia. They're just like football fans. But fans themselves, like the Buffalo Bills fan base calls themselves the Bills Mafia. And that, you know, there is kind of a mafia mentality to being a fan of a certain team. And you don't want anybody else to like taint your rituals. Like the year the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, me and about like 4 coworkers were just diehard fans. And we all knew, we all knew at the start of the season, like we, it was interesting. It was like positive ideation. It was like prophecy. But like me and these coworkers, we would sit around and we'd be like, you know, they're going to win the Super Bowl this season. And this is before the season even started. And I don't normally talk that way. I don't just do this thing where I blindly say every season, they're going to win the Super Bowl this season. They're going to win the Super Bowl this season. Just th- there was something in the air. And we all said, they're going to win the Super Bowl this season. And we had this boss who was always trying to pretend that he was a fan because, of, be, because like, I don't mind fairweather fans. I've said that before. I have no beef with fairweather fans. I don't believe in any kind of like purity test to be a football fan. I completely understand that a lot of people really only care when a team is doing well. Like when the local team is doing well. Like for a lot of people, they don't need the spiritual torture of being an actual sports fan. Because that's what it is. Like sports... being Being a dedicated sports fan means that you are constantly going through existential, spiritual terror with the hope that your team does well. And a lot of fans, they don't need to go through that. Like, they don't want to watch every single game when when your team is miserable. And so it's exciting when the team is doing well. I, I never blame anybody for being a fair weather football fan. What I do blame them for is if they bring negative bullshit with that. And that's what this boss would do, where he would, (laughs) I take it personally still, I don't even think he he meant it the wrong way, but he just wasn't a real fan. He was a fair weather fan. He wasn't even from this area. And it wasn't that he was a fair weather fan. It was that he was always like saying things to us like, oh, they didn't look that good last night. Or he'd be like, well, they got, and he wasn't even a big football fan. So it wasn't even like he was some expert, which made it that much worse. And he would say things like, oh, they got outplayed. He's like, they might have won last night, but they got outplayed. Meanwhile, he's pretending to be a fan of them. And we all would just, we wouldn't talk to him about it because it was just like, you're you're interfering with our ritual. You're interfering. We kind of became our own little mafia where it was like, we're the diehard Seahawks fans here. We don't need you interfering. We don't need you getting involved. We have our own system here, guy. You know, guy, we got our own system. We got our own rituals. If you came to that bar that I was at, like, I wouldn't pass the football to you. We don't need your bad juju on that football. That's how you feel. You you kind of become a mafia, and it's no coincidence that the, the Buffalo Bills fan base calls themselves the Bills Mafia. Yeah, it sounds catchy and fun, but fan bases kind of see themselves that way. It's tribal, because that's what the Mafia is at its core, is it's tribal. It's a subculture, and that's what fan bases are. There's a culture in football of fandom, and then there's subcultures, which are fandoms for certain teams. And people are very skeptical if you're a fan of multiple teams. I am. I like multiple teams. I'd say there's three teams that I regularly support, that I care about. I own hats for each of them. I default to the Seahawks, though. If any of those teams plays the Seahawks, I want the Seahawks to win. That's where my core loyalty is. But I do. Ha- I, it, it's fun to have multiple teams to like. Some people don't think you should. Some people take it very seriously where they don't think you should be allowed to like more than one team. I understand that. I do. It's kind of like people who think you should only have one religion or one spiritual practice. You know, It's kind of like the same thing. It's like, no, you need to you need to be a sworn Christian. You need to call you need to be this and you can't be anything else. It's kind of the same mentality and I understand and respect that. And there's always a part of me that wants to do that. Like, just like with religion and spirituality, like there's always a part of me that feels like, yeah, you know, would it it be preferable if I just fully committed to one idea? And I've had the same dilemma with football. Like, should I not be a fan of other teams? And no, I, I, I get a lot out of being a fan of multiple teams. Like I get a a lot out of paying attention to multiple ideas, philosophies, spiritual, spiritual practices. So, you know, I'm not somebody who's going to limit myself, but I understand it. I understand why you would, and I understand why fan bases kind of see themselves as their own little mafia. They have their own way of speaking. They have their own little rituals, So anyone who looks at sports and they just, they think, oh, it's a bunch of dumb, it's a bunch of people who were too stupid to become scientists, throwing a ball around and chasing it. You don't know anything. You don't know anything. They don't. And if somebody thinks that's all it is, they don't know anything. What else do they not know about? It's okay to not know about something, but don't pretend like you do. that's another sign of good leadership is you know you want to be confident but not confident to the point of arrogance and dishonesty and what's funny about all that going back to leadership before I close this out is that like the idea is that that's hard like oh it's hard to balance blame versus responsibility it's hard to balance discipline versus punishment it's hard to balance confidence versus arrogance. Well, that's why you're in the frickin' position. Frickin'. The reason why we have these tense, almost warlike conflicts just to vote in a new guy for that position of president, just the fact that it takes so much out of us. And we put so much into it. Even when you're like me and you see it as theater, it still affects you. That should be really fucking hard. Fuck, 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 Fucking hard. Being really stupid here, but... No, that should be really hard. But the reason you're selected for leadership is because you should already know how to navigate those dilemmas. Or you should already have... Kind of an intuitive sense as well as experience. But the reason why you should be selected for leadership is because you don't get hung up on those dilemmas and you don't choose the wrong one. When you have the ability to be confident opposed to arrogant, you don't choose arrogance. When you have the opportunity to be honest instead of dishonest, you don't choose dishonesty. To me, that's what makes a good leader is they are able to navigate those dilemmas better than the average person, much better. But that said, it should still be hard. You want their job to be hard. Like, I don't go around thinking, oh, gee, like when I go into to McDonald's, which I never do, but let's, let's say I'm going into McDonald's, I don't go, you know what? I sure wish that that manager's job was harder. But when I look at a president, I think like his job should be hard. If his job is easy, that's a problem. Or a potential problem. Because even when times are good, a politician should be constantly trying to sort out, constantly trying to figure out what the right attitude is, let alone decisions, like not just the decisions that a politician makes, but even just the right attitude, the right disposition. But I think that natural leaders don't have to go through all that. They don't have to spin their wheels trying to figure it out, whether they're doing something good or not. Because, you know, just because someone's a leader doesn't make them good. Just like I was talking about with humanity, it's like being a human doesn't make you good or bad. It makes you a human. Being a leader doesn't make you good or bad. As a person, morally, it makes you a leader. And leaders can be extremely skilled, naturally and otherwise, at being leaders. But it doesn't mean they're going to use their leadership for a good purpose. It's like you look at Hitler. I don't think anybody disagrees that Adolf Hitler is a good, was a good leader in the sense that he was a highly effective leader. And it seems to have come naturally. I don't think he went to any kind of leadership training. I mean, maybe he, the military obviously prepared him. But what made Hitler an effective leader for his own purposes, which I'm not going to moralize while I make this point, but what made him an effective leader for his own purposes was experience and probably his natural character. So even though he was good at leading... It doesn't mean that the thing that he was leading was good. It doesn't mean that the outcome was good. But it means he was effective. And sometimes, uh, I don't know. I mean, I understand that through football as well, where it's like the power of effective leadership. And that's one reason why I feel like kids should participate in team sports. Like, the way that people talk about youth sports and youth football, they make it out to be torture. Because there are some bad stories, because some people get injured, because some coaches are cruel. People have a tendency to think that it's all bad, and it's like, you're missing out on so much. Just like people are missing out on what actually goes on in the life of a football fan... They really have no idea what goes on on a team unless they've been on a team. And not just for one year. I think it's something that you have to do for multiple years. And I played other sports. Like, I played soccer a few years. I played t-ball, baseball a few years. I quit those pretty early. Once I found football, I didn't want other sports. I didn't want to be a guy who just plays sports year-round. I pretty much found what I was looking for in football. And as a result, I don't really have any strong memories of soccer and baseball. And those are different, too, because it's like, yeah, there's strategy to soccer. I mean, at the ages that I played soccer, it was mostly just kids. It was chaos, just kids. We knew which goal. Most of the time, we knew which goal we were trying to kick the ball into. And we knew that the goalie was going to try to stop it. But as far as any finesse beyond that, I didn't learn anything. But football, like even from an early age, like I even played, uh, I played flag football one year before I could actually play tackle. And that was fun. Flag football is a lot of fun. But with flag football, it's like even then, even though we were tiny, even though we're like eight or nine years old, probably eight years old, actually. Yeah, I was eight years old when I played flag football. Even though we're tiny and we don't really know, we don't completely understand the sport yet. You can't play the sport without strategy, without learning the rules. So, like, you can play soccer without really knowing the rules or or without really knowing the strategy. You have to kind of know the rules. And, like, baseball, too, for that matter. It's fairly simple. Like, you as an individual hit the ball and you try to run around all the bases. And there's a lot of strategy and finesse. I'm not taking anything away from baseball. As I've said before, I love the rules and mechanisms of the sport of baseball. I can't watch an entire game. I can't follow it. There's too many games. The games are too long. I can't do it. I've tried. I just can't. But I still love the mechanism. I love the game. But it's easy to understand from a young age. You can you can intuitively understand. Like Even though there's technique and finesse and skill to it that you will only develop later. And there are strategies... As a little kid, you just know, you step up to the plate, you swing the bat, you try to hit the ball, and you run around. If you're on defense, the coach tells you to stand in a specific area, and that this specific area is basically your jurisdiction, and if the ball comes over here, try to catch it, and if you can't catch it, try to grab it, and then throw it to the catcher, throw it to home base as best you can. Pretty easy to understand, soccer even easier, just kick the ball over there. And if you're the goalie, stop the other team from kicking their ball into your goal. Football, it doesn't matter if you're playing flag football with a bunch of eight-year-olds. They have to understand the strategy. They have to understand what a play is. There's a lot more rules. There's a lot more strategy. It doesn't make it superior. It's just more complex. And and maybe more than that, it's it's more immediately complex. Like, you can't start out playing and not understand the strategy and rules. Even though it's going to be a rudimentary version of that when you're eight years old, you still, it, it's, you have to understand the logic of football to some degree. And so I have a, a certain admiration for football coaches because, especially youth football coaches, because they are having to teach kids something very complex So they have to be very effective teachers because there'd be kids on your team too. Like I had kids, like I was from a single parent household, but my dad was involved in my life, taking me to football games. I think I learned the rules of football probably just from spending time with him. I don't think he even sat down and was like, he would say things. It's funny. I think he gradually would just say things and I would learn because I wanted to learn because I found football so interesting. I wanted to learn. And so just my dad saying things, watching football with my dad, I think I just kind of figured it out. But, you know, there were kids on my teams whose dads weren't in their lives. There were quite a few of them, actually. Because, you know, single moms, like, they want to get their kids in extra extracurricular programs. Like, they work and they want their kid to be looked after. Maybe they're concerned about their kid getting into trouble. So it's like a lot of single moms would, would put their kids in sports. And so I had a lot of kids who were from backgrounds where their dad wasn't involved in their life at all. And as a coach, you have to be kind of a paternal authority to kids who don't have any paternal authority in their lives. You have to teach them the rules of this game that's incredibly hard to understand. And on top of that, you have to exhibit the traits of a good leader if you want that team to succeed and if you want that team to respect you. It's incredible. And that's why I have a lot of respect for anyone who even tries to coach the friend, the friend that I went to that, um, bar with where they passed around the football. He was a youth basketball coach. I never saw him coach, but he took it really seriously. He's a goofy guy. Like he has a sense of humor. He now works in sports. He now, he, he designs the, um, the entertainment at, at the local, uh, what do you call it? Uh, minor league baseball team who are very popular. You know, Minor league baseball is very popular around here. And he, he works for that team. So this is a guy who got involved, but he's also an artist and a musician. He's, he's a, and an eccentric guy. But he does all of the halftime or just he does all of the entertainment. Like all of the antics, all of the skits. And they give him a budget and he plans it all out. He buys props he buys costumes it's incredible it's my word of the day is incredible but he went to me he went with me to that Seahawks game where or the, to that bar where we watched the Seahawks game and they passed around the football to everyone in the bar and uh what was I going to say about him oh yeah he was a youth basketball coach too though and he, he would wear suits he would he would wear a suit and he apparently got way into it and the boys loved him, like he was. Very, he would argue with the refs. He got way, and he was serious. Like I, I watched football with him, and it was like, "We were both on pins and needles. We were both completely emotionally invested." Actually, that was funny because at that bar, we were getting, we lost that game when we were at the bar that time, and we were he and I were getting so upset that these other guys in the bar were like, "It's okay, guys. Like you guys, it's it's early in the day." Life is good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, football's ruined many days for me. It's made many days and it's ruined them. That's why it's like a torturous spiritual exercise on top of everything else. But uh, he, we were both getting way into that game. And from what I gathered, he, he was a very passionate coach. But I respected that so much. And like, I can't do that. I, I couldn't be a coach. I didn't play long enough, you know. I didn't. I don't feel like. I feel like I would have had to have finished out high school playing football if I were to coach. And and this is that's a commitment. I can see a lot of appeal to it, though. I wouldn't want to be a head coach, but I could see myself being an assistant coach. It's not something I'll do. Like I said, it's just I, who has the time for that. I don't have the time for that, and I don't feel like I played football long enough to warrant coaching. But I can I can definitely see the appeal, and you test yourself. I mean, that's a real test of your own leadership skills, like more than a job. You know, yeah. You I've been a I've been people's boss at, at jobs before, and that's a learning experience. But when you volunteer to coach, that's an entirely different story. Much more of you has to come out. Like when you're a boss at a job, like ideally some of you should come out. Ideally, like some of who you really are should be a part of that. Even if you hate the job, even if you don't relate to the job, it's like some of you still has to come out if you're going to do it effectively. But with a football coach, it's like, I think much more of you has to be in that. And so football coaching is a good test of leadership. I'd love to, we should have a president who coached football. I wonder if that's ever happened i'm trying to think i'm sure somebody one of these presidents one of these freaking presidents must have been a football coach even just a youth football coach i feel like maybe that's what we need not not a military commander not a former general not a businessman not a not a former da let's just get a football coach to be our president